Welcome to the Sense of Soul podcast. We are your hosts, Shannon and Mandy. Grab your coffee, open your mind, heart, and soul. It's time to awaken. Today on Sense of Soul, we are so freaking excited to have Nadia on as a guest. She's from our home state here in Colorado, founding pastor at the House of All Sinners and Saints Church until July of 2018. It was filled with transgenders, gays, soccer moms, elected officials, ex-convicts. She welcomes all. She is also a three-time New York best-selling author and her newest book, Shameless, A Sexual Reformation. She's gone viral, has millions of views on her amazing videos on grace and forgiving assholes. She is changing the way people feel about walking through church doors. Most feel like they have to leave a piece of themselves out front, and she opened the doors to them with full acceptance for whoever you are. We are incredibly excited to welcome Nadia Boltz-Weber. Hello, good morning. Hey. Thank uh, you. Yeah, thanks for being with us. Yeah. Why did you choose to sit with us today and interview? I mean, you're a pretty big deal, and we're just two moms sitting in a closet. <laughs> <laughs> I usually am more prone to say yes if it's not a religion podcast. So if it's, if it's too, if you were two pastors, I would have said no. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that? I feel like my calling, so to speak, is more to be, to make these ideas um, sort of accessible to people who are outside the church rather than inside the church. And so if, I would be exposed to new listeners, then it's worth it to do it. And if I'm doing a religion podcast, I'm not being exposed to new listeners. It's like my fan base, you know? Good point. You know, Mandy and I have just recently done a lot of research on the Bible, on some of the history. And so this is kind of synchronicity for Mandy and I meeting with you today after several weeks of getting our minds blown and feeling very distant from what we thought we knew to be true. Yeah, how did you guys grow up? Actually, I am deep-rooted Catholic. Almost every single one of my ancestors were forced to be Catholic when they came into this country way of France, you know, whether that was through the Black Code, free men of color, we're also under that same French code. I have a shaman who came way of um, Canada, who became known as the apostate who converted to Christianity. Mm. I have an ancestor who was actually the witness to the immigrants that came over in those first five boats, actually were baptized before you got on the boat. When I was researching that and finding that, I realized how very deeply rooted religion was in my family. But in, but, but in what seems like a coercive way? No, I didn't know that. There was a lot of things mm -hmm. in my history I ended up finding out that didn't really align with what I thought I knew. Mm -hmm. And that just was a shocking one because I didn't realize how, you know, as free as America Mm -hmm. says we are <laughs> and you know what they say that this land is based on and for all of those things just kind of been blowing up in my face recently yeah so so what but did you go to mass every week when you were growing up 
I went to Catholic school as a child and uh -huh. I lived in, in New Orleans. Even when we came to Colorado, they felt it was important to move next to a Catholic school because no one had ever been to anything but on both right. sides of the family. I was sure. the very first person to go to mm -hmm. public school mm -hmm. in our family. A little bit of so a was it shock. Was it more of like an ethnic identity than a like? It was both. Home? It was mm -hmm. all of it, all above. And also mm -hmm. I'd say that I read a little bit of your shameless book. I haven't finished mm -hmm. it yet, but that part was a huge part of my ancestry that I really mm -hmm. faced because women in my family are not like today. <laughs> they yeah. weren't the sex, the religion, right. the race, everything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So is there any part of Catholicism that you still love or hold dear and want to to keep? You know, what's really funny is I really have to be honest and say that some of the traditions I love, I of love the, the smell of a church when you yes. walk in. Yeah. Um, You're allowed to love communion. it. <laughs> I love like everybody, you know, saying hello to each other. Yeah. Um, I love the togetherness. I feel like yeah. there's a very important part of the church that is needed in every community. I do. Totally. Totally. I just think that it's a shame that it's been used for power yep. and for control. And control. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the thing is, is like, you're allowed to love those parts. Like that you get, those are yours to keep, <laughs> you know, you can choose what to kind of walk out with and claim, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's okay to love those things. And also I think human beings, frankly, are wired for religious community. I mean, religion has fashioned itself in endless variety in every human culture throughout time. Now those differ a lot. So it's not to say they're all the same, but they all meet a, the same human need. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, so many of us have walked away from religion for reasons of self-preservation or because we couldn't be a part of it and be consistent with our values or for any number of reasons, you know, our mom finally divorced our abusive dad. And now the church tells her after serving, you know, faithfully for decades that she can't receive communion. Like, you know, of course, a lot oh, of people are like, fuck happened. you. That yeah. literally happened in my family. Yeah. You know, I mean, yeah. what is that? Mandy, I can go ahead and explain your, um, Gosh, mine's easy. I grew up knowing nothing. I didn't even know what the oh. fuck Easter meant. I didn't even know what Christmas meant. My mom was like, figure that shit out for yourself. And Were your parents I, raised religious? Um, yeah, my mom was kicked out of Catholic school because it was announced on New Year's Eve that my grandfather had the first baby born at midnight uh, with a neighbor. So uh, he had committed infidelity. And so her and her brothers went to school and they said, oh, not, nope, you're not allowed here. Jesus. Uh, I know. Just so, like Jesus would have it happen. Right? Yeah. I went to be very sinful. I loved alcohol mm -hmm. and cocaine and partying. And I was the life of the party. And I landed my ass in rehab and felt like I wasn't worthy of God's love based on just the very little that I had learned about Christianity. Mm -hmm. And I didn't think I was worthy. And I didn't think he was going to love me. And then uh, it was interesting, during all my sinning, I actually died. And when I died and hadn't mm. asked Christ into my life, I didn't go to hell. So I was confused. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Surprise! You had, some, you had verifiable data that that's bullshit. Yeah. Yes. You're like, I definitely should have been murdered. <laughs> I was so, that's I was hilarious. like, I was like, if this is what hell looks like, 
fuck yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh god. So, um, yeah, that's that's my story. And then mm. and then I sat in a church up at Harmony House in Estes Park, the rehab, and mm. the pastor said to me, "Do you believe your God is forgiving?" And I said, "I do." Yeah. And he said, well, then if you don't forgive yourself, you're saying you're bigger than God. And it was in that moment, I realized that I could forgive myself and that my past mm -hmm. didn't define me. Oh, that's beautiful. That's very good pastoral care from that pastor. That's very good. Yeah. Huh. I'm always glad to hear the good stories of my colleagues, like getting it right, because I hear a million of the other kind. <laughs> well, girlfriend, you have definitely got it right. And I would love to hear your story as a childhood. Yeah. I was, uh, I was raised extremely religious. We went to church three times a week. The only people I knew were people who went to our church. And those people were also in our home on a regular basis, having meals, having Bible studies, devotionals. So, you know, my family was just deeply ensconced in the church, what's called the Church of Christ. And, you know, like anybody else, like you don't know, like, your childhood's fucked up until you start meeting other people who had different ones and they look at you like, what? That's not normal. You know? <laughs> so started sort of meeting people who had different experiences of that. A couple things happened. One, um, I realized, oh, this isn't normal or average or something. And then, but more importantly, it really challenged so many things that they taught me were true. So I kept being told that like homosexuality is a sin abomination, right? So I'm like, oh, okay, got it. That's wrong, that's bad. But then I went to high school and I, I experienced a lot of alienation as a kid because of, um, of uh, some disfiguring uh, health problems I had. So I didn't look normal. And so when I went to high school, the gay theater boys were literally the first people who ever thought I was fabulous. Like whoever, oh. who, like they loved me love gay theater guys <laughs> <laughs> they they love loved them. me and and that love fucked things up for me because now i have the difference between what i was being told was true and what i was experiencing to be mm -hmm. true and for me an idea or a doctrine or an interpretation of a bible verse should never trump our actual experience of the truth, you know? It shouldn't be more important than people. And so that was when there was this like kind of, you know, wedge for me between what I was taught to believe and what I was experiencing to be true. And so that dualistic thinking that I was taught, which is like, you're either us or you're them, you're in or you're out, you're good or you're bad, you're saved or you're lost, you know? That dualistic thinking, you know, in, in some ways can be helpful to us, just I think in terms of anthropologically, because, you know, early human beings, they couldn't really think in terms of subtlety in a way. I think you had to look at something and go, is that in the category of dinner or poison, right? Like you, you had to know, <laughs> is this going to help me or hurt me? There wasn't like, you know, well, it's blowfish, and if you really do it, it's usually poison, but it, no, there's no subtlety, right? And so I think we're developed to think dualistically, but that as we grow in wisdom, hopefully we begin to see how much gray there is, you know, and how much subtlety there is in life. And, and that's, that's unsettling because the more you embrace the fact that 
there's a lot of gray and a lot of subtlety and nuance in life, the less easy it is to be right. That's where it comes down. That's what it comes down to. If, yeah. if I, if I can sort of accept that, oh shit, there's more subtlety than I realized, then if it's not so dual, if it's not so good or bad, then how do I know I'm good? Right? So then it makes it much more difficult to sit, stand in judgment of other people knowing I'm right. It's been a process. When I left the church, I took longer to leave the dualistic thinking behind than it did to leave the church behind. And, you know, I spent a decade outside Christianity. I couldn't have anything to do with it. All the shit around gender was just too hard, you know? Not only could women not be clergy, women weren't even supposed to pray out loud if a man was there. If a man was there, the man does it. So all of this stuff about, about women are supposed to be subservient to men. And again, uh, there was this conflict between what I was being told and what I was experiencing. So, you know, I'm like 12, 13 years old. You know, we have these male Sunday school teachers. Once I was 12 or 13, you know, they used to be women. They turned to men because suddenly, well, not turned to men, you know, it was only, <laughs> but they, suddenly <laughs> the people who were our teachers were the men in the congregation and not the women. And the reason was, is because women weren't allowed to have authority over men in the age of accountability was around 12, 13 years old. And so after boys were 12, 13 years old, they had more authority than the women in the congregation. So I'm, I'm going, so now we have the male Sunday school teachers. And I was like, so if I'm being told that I'm supposed to only learn from men and I'm supposed to be, I'm not allowed to teach men anything and I have to be subservient, then why the fuck am I clearly more intelligent than my male Sunday school teacher? Like that, <laughs> yes. that became hard to justify. Oh my gosh. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that women were made from Adam's rib? <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't literally care, but um, let's see. <laughs> there are some really beautiful feminist interpretations of the text as well that are kind yeah. of like, Adam was sort of like the first pancake where he's like, you throw that one out and you, once you kind of get, you know, your feel for things, then you make the one that, that actually works. I mean, there are lots of different interpretations yeah. of the text. Yeah. That it's interesting that you brought this up because it's actually what I'm struggling with lately. The fact that Mary Magdalene and a lot of the women weren't put into the Bible. And then that spun me into looking at my ancestry and seeing that back around Henry VIII, they were marrying off six-year-old little girls to kings. And just, you know, it's, it's just been like one of those things lately where I'm like, oh my God, us women have just been so suppressed for so long. I've been frustrated with it. I know you have a tattoo of Mary Magdalene on your arm. Why did yeah. you choose that? Um, I got that tattoo when I was in seminary, when I was sort of, I don't know, I guess struggling with calling to be a a priest to be a pastor because I just I am such a sort of flawed deeply flawed human being I mean I, I'm kind of a garbage person in a lot of ways so I just thought I don't know if I can pull this off you know and I just did a lot of more study of Mary Magdalene and she was the apostle to the apostles like literally the whole Christianity thing wouldn't exist if she hadn't followed instructions she she was the first one to witness the resurrection and if Je and then Jesus like go tell the boys you know so like, if she hadn't been the first preacher, you know, the whole thing wouldn't have even happened. And so one of the gospel accounts was written from a community where Mary Magdalene was a leader. And one of the gospel accounts was written uh, when 
where Peter was a leader because um, there's such a difference in the way she's portrayed and what authority yeah. she has in these two gospels. So that's based in the actual sort of text that we have and not in the Gnostic gospels. But, um, but they made her a whore though, Nadia. Yeah. How did yeah. that come about? Yeah, that was because I think Anselm, one of the early church fathers is I think the first one. So I don't know why it why like almost every character in the new testament who's a woman's name is mary so fucking confusing so many marys so you basically yeah. have you know everyone's mary lots of sex workers and various women of the city you know all these characters and so they're often just conflated with each other so if you look at the actual text mary magdalene was not the woman in the city who washed his feet with her hair right one of the gospel accounts says that's Mary of Bethany, who's Lazarus's sister, who did that. And one of them said it was a woman of the city. So there's a conflation. I mean, look, when you have four, if you have four different accounts of stuff that happened, and those weren't written for a very long time after the events happened, there's a lot of contradictions in the text, which I think is great. It should foil our attempts to pridefully say we know exactly what the Gospels mean <laughs> when they contradict each other. And instead, people find bizarre ways of saying, no, they don't contradict each other. And I do absolutely know what they mean. Yeah, it's, not, <laughs> it's literally not in the text. So, I mean, anybody who flouts that as being true just doesn't read the actual text. So, I have a Martin Luther tattoo. Can you explain why you chose that one? Well, it's sort of a quote from Luther in Latin on my wrist, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously sinner and saint. And so one of the things that drew me to Lutheran theology, which is really distinct, is it's really based in paradox and not duality. So it's based in living in the tension between two things that seem contradictory, but both are true. Like the fact that we're all simultaneously sinner and saint, 100% of both, all the time. Nobody's 80-20, you know, like it just explains sort of human nature, the fact that we, everybody has a capacity to be destructive and hurtful. Everybody has a capacity to be healing and loving. And that's part of human nature. And what happens when we think we're all one and not the other, it can be incredibly damaging. Um, like it helps me never be disappointed in a way to understand, oh no, human beings are garbage. I mean, like there is nothing that we can't make ugly or horrible, <laughs> you know, honestly. Also, we're glorious and like astounding and beautiful. Like both things are true. I'm watching this show called The Vow on HBO. Are you guys watching this? Oh my God, oh, about Nexium. Did you watch that documentary series, Wild Wild Country on Netflix? That one is about the Rajneesh Puram, which was a, a cult or a, a spiritual community. Okay, started, started with a guru in India and, and mm -hmm. then they built a whole city in Oregon. Yeah, yeah, I did. And then of it. course, everything goes sideways. But what's interesting about both of these uh, stories is what's similar in them, in that charismatic leaders who end up having truly cult followings, mm -hmm. um, the thing that they are exploiting in people is beautiful. Like it's the fact that people want 
community. It's the fact that they desire meaning. It's the fact that they want to be part of something beautiful and transformative. They believe that it's possible to live in community with each other, to like grow as humans, to access transcendence. So that is the thing that is exploited when you have charismatic leaders who have no actual oversight, you know, who are just allowed to be an authority in and of themselves. And so often, like with both of those stories, what's interesting is they both started out in, in like what seemingly really beautiful, positive ways with meditation or with self-improvement and awareness and doing your own emotional work and, you know, stuff that really was having a positive effect on people's lives. And then it all went to shit eventually, you know, and there's like sexual exploitation and financial exploitation and personal control and all this stuff. One thing that I'm grateful for is that I'm a founder of a spiritual community and I'm a charismatic leader my whole life. I've been like, Hey, let's do this. And everyone's like, okay, you know, they follow me. (laughs) And so, but as much shit as people talk about organized, quote, organized religion, you know what I have? I have a bishop. I have an entire organization that's making sure I'm still on the yellow brick road, that I haven't taken people into a field of poppies. And so, you know, say what you want about the, the downside of organized religion, but there's oversight for people like me. I was in, I did that, uh, an interview with Krista Tippett on that show On Being, and, um, and it was live. This was maybe six years ago. It was live and we did a Q&A and someone said, so you have an issue with authority, right? Like you do your own thing, you're independent. And I'm like, yeah, fair enough. And they're like, but you're in a system under authority, like you have a bishop. And I said, yeah. And he's like, tell me how you've navigated that. I'm like, what are you kidding? I'm why we have bishops. <laughs> like someone... <laughs> Like you fucking kidding me? Someone like me should have a bishop. Good God. You know, I was watching yeah. that Wild Wild Country and there's this woman, Sheena, who ends up being in charge and and she was she had a similar personality to me. I, I do Enneagram work, so if, I don't know if that's a language you guys use, but I'm an eight on the Enneagram and she is too. And I was watching her, everything unfold, and I thought, yeah, man that's when I would have gotten the guns too. You know, like, like, <laughs> like if there's nothing to yeah. identify and regulate the shadow side of ourselves within okay. spiritual communities, okay. that's a problem. That's a problem. And so when I'm watching the Nexium thing that, that show The Vow, I'm like, nobody was questioning this guy, Keith Raniere. Nobody yeah. was thinking, I yeah. bet there's a shadow side to that dude. How is, he, mm. how is he pursuing his self-interest in a way that's being pawned off as like um, helping other people? You know, like mm-hmm. there's none of that. And so the point about the tattoo to get back to it is that when you have that ability to hold both of these things as being true about yourself and everyone else, I think it allows for communities themselves to be healthier. For people, I think idealism is is an extremely dangerous thing for human beings. I, I feel like going back to a church at this point would be very difficult for me. Of course, yeah, yeah, of course it would, yeah. I never suggest to people, well, you know, you should really try and find your oh, a way back to organized religion. For some of us, that's, that's a healthy path, but for a lot of people, it's not, and I totally respect that. I think, I think that 
it's important to do personal work around the stories we have about our religious upbringings, if we have them, because of the thing that I asked you at the beginning, like what part do you still love and cherish? Because if there were good parts to a fucked up religious upbringing, whether or not I practice the religion, there's some go-tos I still do. Absolutely. Yeah. And, the, and, that's, and that's fine because what happens is I was watching the vow and thinking these people were so devoted to this community they were part of, a lot of which was really beautiful. And so then for it all to crash down because of sexual exploitation from the founder and all of this stuff, what happens is we become alienated from our own story in a sense, right? So if you have a religious upbringing that is simul justus et peccator, right? That's simultaneously good and bad. Um, when it's so bad, you have to leave. I just think the healthiest thing is to eventually come back and somehow allow yourself to still feel good about the things that were good. Because that's when I transcended, oh, that sounds too lofty of a word, but that's when I dealt with the duality that I was raised in, is when I was able to look back on my dualistic thinking, uh, fundamentalist Christian upbringing. And when I was able to acknowledge parts of it were beautiful and parts of it, those beautiful things I get to keep, when doing that didn't feel like a betrayal of how the ugly parts of it hurt me. Mm -hmm. That's when I was able to sort of heal and feel more whole because it, what are you left? How do you even make sense of the good things when there's so many bad things? I just think we have to do that work. And I, I don't even know what it's called, but yeah. Being able to hold that there is truth about things being good and bad at the same time feels um, so much more integrated way to live because otherwise the choices feel like delusion or resentment. You know, either we're deluding ourselves and going, no, it's all good, everything was great. Or resenting the bad parts so much that we're stealing joy from ourselves about the good. So true. Mm -hmm. It's just, I think that there's a lot of contradictions in the Bible. Is it a credible book? That's just kind of mm -hmm. what I've been battling with. Being a little bit more awakened to things and you know the book of Enoch sure. you know I've read I've read Mary Magdalene I've read the gospel yeah. of Thomas and I'm sure. just like why are these things not taught like what is the yeah. conspiracy around religion yeah, yeah it's those, those those things are called the Gnostic gospels and, and Gnosticism was kind of ruled to be heretical in the fourth century and and it's very sexy to assume it's because they didn't want us to know the truth I that's fine but really it's because um not Gnosticism in general has a spiritual elitism to it, and that's why. It sort of opposes Christianity, not because uh, it's female empowered and we couldn't handle that, but ultimately because Gnosticism really is about the fact that there is there are secret teachings that only special people have access to, which is just completely opposes the gospel of Jesus, that 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 somehow there's only special people who get to know the special things and then they get to be enlightened and move on. So <clears throat> in terms of the Bible, um, is it true? It's like the Bible is a library. It's not a book. And so it's like, if you look at my bookshelf, there's poetry, there's biography, there's history, there's novels. 
So you can be like, is your library true? Well, it, there, it, each of those types of literature tell us a, a, a sort of truth from different angles. And so the idea that the Bible is some book that um, God basically wrote and in it, in it, everything in it is factual, um, you'd have to really tie your brain into knots to make that be true. Like, it makes no sense. <laughs> You're right, there's a million contradictions. And so that's not, <clears throat> that to me, that's not, I'm interested in what does the Bible do? not what it is. So I, I know that there are certain stories in there that tell us who we are and tell us about the world and the divine in ways that are timeless and yet will be interpreted differently every, every cultural context in which they're read. I know it tells the story of Jesus and that is always the center point for me. So in terms of like how true or how important or authoritative the Bible is, it's it's more it looks like a sort of a target to me in the sense that the thing that I think it's mostly about is Jesus and and the gospel of Jesus and so that's at the center. So any texts that have to do with that have a lot of authority to me. And then any texts that sort of support those same ideas also have some authority, but then the ones that seem to completely oppose those ideas, they're of interest. They tell us what was going on at the time. There might be something there. Do they have the same amount of authority as the stuff close to the middle? No, not at all. So um, Lutherans have just, that's our view of the Bible. It's very different than others. So when people are like, well, what do you do with this verse in Le random verse in Leviticus about homosexuality? I'm like, Oh, dude, I do not have a dog in that fight. Like, <clears throat> that's your argument because of how you see the text. You can't make it make sense. That's not my view of it. So I can't even be part of that argument, you know? Who is God to you? And is God, do you look as God as an authority to you? Because I'm Christian, I feel like the most reliable way for me to know who God is is to look at how God chose to reveal God's self in Jesus. That's pretty knowable as a person who said things and did things in the world and whose life had a particular impact. So if I ever have this view of God and it doesn't hold up against what I know of Jesus, I go with the Jesus part. <laughs> like that's, so it's, it's kind of simplistic, I guess. Now, at the same time, I think God is the source of all things, the source of all life. And it is grace that we get to come from that. Like there's a part of, of our source in all of us, like that divine spark, the part of us that's unhurtable, that is pure and beautiful, comes from God. So I believe God is who we come from and God is who we go to and God is who we get to draw upon as, a, as our source, when we don't have enough mercy or love or forgiveness, we can draw well, upon our source. One God, one people, you know, just his chosen people. I literally had made a comment one time. I made a comment, I said, we're all God's children or something. And I had yeah. a Christian come back to me and say, no, you're not God's child. 
unless gross. you blah, blah. not everyone is god's child and i That's just thought so sad. I'm very sad that you believe in a god who would be that picky about the people he made i'm only totally ones. they're the only right. good looking ones or something are you right. kidding me i agree 100 percent. like god created humanity in this mind-blowing diversity i mean think of how yeah. Think of the different varieties human beings come in, the different languages and bodies and Culture. skin and beliefs and, you know, the different types of environments we live in and ways we live. I mean, it's just, it's incredible. And then God's like, but yeah, only you. I only love and am pleased with people who happen to, and then you fill in the blank, this tiny circle of people. I'm like, yeah. that makes no fucking sense to me That's at all. Nice. It makes none to me too. So explain yeah. how that is that only Jesus could then get you into heaven and then the rest of you who live in, on the other side of the world who have no clue about Jesus just burn forever in hell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I also think that's bullshit. And I'm what I guess you would call like a Christocentric universalist. So like my thing is Jesus, that's my thing. I believe that whatever that was about, whatever... God making this crazy decision to become manifest inside the womb of a homeless Palestinian teenage girl, <laughs> you know? I mean, whatever that was. Um, and then everything that ensued from that, it was for the redemption of all things and people, the planet. It was for some kind of restoration and for the purpose of beauty and redemption for every single thing. Now, because I think that's God's nature. Now, how God accomplishes that same thing, I do believe that's who God is, through other religions, simple systems, cultures, languages, is it really my business? I believe God does that through all of it. And I don't need to understand how or why uh, for that to be true, but I do believe it's true. So I have respect for all these different traditions. And I know that there is a way that God is redeeming us in all the world through simple systems I will never be called into or understand. But I need a God who is more powerful, more nimble, bigger than my ability to understand God, right? Otherwise, all I'm worshiping is my ability to understand God. I'm not worshiping God anymore. I don't know if you've ever read Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Living Buddha, Living Christ. It was a great book. It was, a, it was amazing to see yeah. somebody from another culture read a book. He has no background, you know, yeah. to come yeah. up with his own interpretation of the Bible. And he was like, sure. oh my God, I love Jesus. He's a Buddha. I mean, that was so beautiful totally. for me to read. Totally. Totally. You know? One of the books that sort of re-evangelized me <laughs> like, like sort of made me go, oh yeah, I do really believe this, was written from a Native American perspective. It was about Jesus as like a sun dancer or whatever. And it was so beautiful and it was so orthodox. It, I mean, in the, in the most beautiful way to the story and to the text and just blew my mind. And it made me believe in God again, you know? So I, I think that when all we can do is say, oh yeah, there's one way to believe, there's one truth, there's one way to live, and that's what we're gonna do, it's idolatry. 
So lots of people have spiritual gifts, right? Yeah. Some don't. I mean, come on, really, some don't. I've well, we're no, okay. <laughs> wait. Hold on. At one point, weren't you like a psychic at a call center? Yeah, yeah. That was. It was very brief because uh, I was oh, horrible oh, at it. Oh, but yeah, yeah. I did that for a few weeks. <laughs> wondered to know. I mean, like, did God just stop talking to us, you know? Or is it just the terminology? Are we not supposed to channel messages of good from our loved ones? They did it the whole time in the Bible. I mean, everybody was seeing mm -hmm. things, dreaming things, talking to people. And the whole book is, is about different spiritual gifts. But I think that it was not in real time. And so what I mean by that is that the things that were taught, the stories that were told, the wisdom that was garnered had been worn smooth by decades of telling it, by struggling with it, by examining it, by going, does it hold up before it was ever even written down? And okay. so I think that back to the simul justus et peccator, I try as a quote spiritual leader to remain sufficiently suspicious of myself <laughs> at all times, <laughs> you know? And so yeah. meaning anybody who claims to have some special knowledge to be some fucking shaman or, you know what I mean? Like, oh, mm -hmm. I'm accessing the divine directly downloading. Well, mm -hmm. I feel like we can make that determination decades from now. But not while you're getting a publishing deal about it. You know what I'm saying? Or like <laughs> doing celebrity retreats for $10,000 a piece. It is the community of hearers and readers who decide, hey, we feel like that's inspired. Right. But so what are you doing never, for your intention? It's never in real time. Yeah. Okay. So I get that. That's totally cool. Hey, Mandy and I had done a episode last summer it was so super fun too we hadn't we didn't know anything about anything so we were just researching and it was on aliens versus angels and how they have all these similarities <laughs> well, we come up, yeah oh, it was so Amazing. fun we, we come up with this we i'm just like i went to freaking sunday school i even taught sunday school i've never heard of them have you heard of nephilims Oh yeah, I'm like part Nephilim, I would say, because I'm, because I'm part, I like to think I'm part Nephilim because they were giants and I'm like 6'1", so, so people are like, they're like, what is your heritage? I think I'm probably part Nephilim. It didn't show up on the 23 and me, but no. Uh, <laughs> probably related, because I'm tall like that too. No one's ever talked about that. Yeah. No, it's... The crazy shit in the Bible is amazing. What about the guy who, uh, he wouldn't listen and to someone and so God just started talking out of his donkey? Like, <laughs> literally talking out of an ass? I'm like, well, that never stopped. But Talking out of your ass. The little cute little chubby cherubs? Are you, are you kidding me? That blew me away. I'll never be able to think of an angel the same. I'm, I'm seeing no. six faces and whatever. They're horrifying. And, but, yeah. <laughs> no one just... Why, why do you think... The very first thing they say every fucking time is, hey, don't, don't be afraid. Like every no. time. That's in like the angel manual. Like they Call have the angels. Hell no. They're all like, don't be afraid. Why? Because they're terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I know. But that's just the thing. Mandy actually and I talked about this a few weeks ago. Why did 
the church or man, put the fear of God. Fear shouldn't even be in the same sentence as God. Why? It's just easier to control people that way and to yeah. get their money. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You know, I loved in I loved in one of your interviews you talked about how we do need some structure. You're seeing this shift where especially these younger generations, um, like my son and my daughter, there there's a lot more um access to internet and they're doing a lot mm -hmm. of fact checking and they're mm -hmm. also a lot more in tune with themselves and they mm -hmm. seem to care more about the earth. I don't know, they're just like this really special generation. They get they're a lot not of as conditioned. They're not they're conditioned not, as as much. So but you were talking in an interview about how it used to be easier. We could, we were told who to, where to worship, what to wear, what mm -hmm. to be like. And now we're kind of like able to find our free identity. But at some point that's causing a little bit of anxiety as well. I think it causes a tremendous amount of anxiety. That what a massive shift it's been. I mean, look, I don't want to live under some authoritative rule where I have to dress a certain way and talk, you know, all of that. I'm glad to throw that aside, but I don't know that we always understand how quickly that happened in terms of human history and what the cost is of that happening because our psyches can't catch up to that big of a shift that quickly, I think. And so um, there is an enormous amount of anxiety from the fact that I am the arbiter of all truth now somehow. I have to decide what is true, I have to decide what is good, what's righteous action, you know, who are the good people, what kind of, of romantic relationship is good enough for me when I see all the shit on Instagram and think maybe it should be looking that way, and, but then there's this other thing over here and oh my yeah. God, and I have yeah. to choose my career and now I have to choose every, my gender, now I have to choose like everything, right? So it's like, holy shit, of course we're all medicated. I mean, it feels impossible to do that and to know we're doing it right. How do you know? How do you know that it's good or it's the right choice? I mean, for everything to be determined by the individual is exhausting. Yeah. You said something that just totally stuck out to me. You get a lot of people that want to talk about your tattoos and your look and how you don't look, you know, like you'd be a pastor in a church. And you're like, that's not what people should be asking me. What people should be asking me is why are these people listening to me and coming to me? Yeah, I forgot I said that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's that shit. Uh, well, I mean, like, have some curiosity about that. Like, why, why do I have half a million social media followers you right. know and why are your why is your church is going empty right right and like why is why is the congregation i founded doing just fine you know and still thriving like those are those are better questions than like what do your tattoos mean why do you think they're coming to you <laughs> i would be more interested in hearing other people answer that because i could say anything i could be like because i got an awesome rack i don't know you know what I mean? <laughs> I okay, mean, well, I then I'll make, answer that. I could make up anything out of my yeah. ego. I would say, this is just maybe my opinion, because our world is shifting towards authenticity and vulnerability, and you are a fucking amazing human that shows that on all levels. Mm -hmm. you, you implement what everyone hopes to be, the truly non-judgmental. You yeah. fucking throw all your dirty laundry out there. You keep your <clears throat> shit humble. You check yourself. You are just yeah. raw. And that's what those people are attracted to. I think those are the things that allow me to be hearable. 
you know, because as soon as somebody is like arrogant or starts talking in that preacher voice or whatever it is, or thinks they're the shit, I turn off. I mean, I'm not going to listen anymore. Yeah. And now it's time for Break That Shit Down. People still want to hear good religious teaching, not bullshit religious teaching. And so I think people listen to me. And now, you know, I have a huge atheist readership because just the wisdom from the Christian tradition, they're down with. So, I mean, I think, you know, as the institution of the church is dying, I think that it is good for them to pay attention to. Yeah, it's not because the basic wisdom within this this tradition is worthless. It's because they've confused the wrapping and the gift for a very long time. And they've protected the wrapping and ignored what the gift is. And the gift is just the perennial wisdom that comes out of all of the traditions. You know what I mean? Each of them has some kind of perennial wisdom that can be so transformative for any human who hears it, you know? Yeah, you've taken out all the bullshit. Yeah, and and so as, as a religious leader, I'm just a caretaker of this very particular tradition that has the perennial wisdom within this one tradition that I am ordained in. That's, I just stay in that lane. Yeah. Where can everybody find you if they wanted to check out your books and I'm, read your blogs? I'm always in my apartment because it's the pandemic. <laughs> no, don't find me here. Um, I, let's see. I have a newsletter called on Substack called The Corners. So you can just look at Google The Corners, Nadia Boltzweber. I have a podcast called The Confessional with The Moth and PRX. I love it. Then, <laughs> thanks. You know, I'm on Twitter and all that, so. We are curious, are you mixing something up? You left the church because you said you just felt like your time was done. What are you up to? Well, I mean, the podcast was huge. That was huge. And then, and I bought a Sprinter van that's being outfitted into a little off-grid, tiny home camper. And I'm going to take it out on the road in the spring and kind of turn it into a mobile confessional booth and maybe try and figure out how to do live events. I might do like a local NPR affiliate parking lot tour across the state. So I'm going to be out there doing stuff. We can't thank you enough. You know, we have a soft spot for Colorado. Thank you for what you've done for the community. Awesome. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. Have a good one. Thanks for being with us today. We hope you will come back next week. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate, like, and subscribe. Thank you. We rise to lift you up. Thanks for listening.